Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm very pleased to say we have Cynthia Wachtel on the show, and we'll be talking about her book, War No More, The Anti-War Impulse in American Literature, 1861 to 1914. You've probably read The Red Badge of Courage. I know that in high school I was supposed to have read it. I don't think I did. I may have read the Cliff Notes, however, because I remember a little bit about it, namely that it was one of the first American anti-war books. Now, of course, I may be wrong in this, because it's actually not clear that it was an anti-war book at all. The important point is that it was the first. Actually, as Cynthia Wachtel points out, it was not the first. There was a tradition of American anti-war writing that she has uncovered, I say uncovered because it has been neglected by the critics. And she has found some remarkable things. I particularly recommend the pieces written by Ambrose Bierce. They are really astonishing in their modernity, and they are great reads. I really enjoyed talking to Cynthia today, and I hope that you take the time to buy and read the book. So without further delay, here's the interview. Hi, Cynthia. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Very well, thank you. I'm glad to hear that. Today we're talking with Cynthia Wachtel about her wonderful new book, War No More, The Anti-War Impulse in American Literature, 1861 to 1914. As I was telling Cynthia in the pre-interview, I got notification of this book. I guess it was a couple months ago, wasn't it, Cynthia? I can't remember. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, but in any event, uh, it uh, fell exactly on the heels of a conversation that I was having with someone about anti-war literature in which I stridently defended the point that there really was none of it before World War I. <laughs> and so I get this book, you know, notification of this book in the mail, and I'm going, hmm, I can either ignore it or I can actually learn something. So I, I chose to learn something, and I actually learned a lot from the book. It turns out that in the American case, there was qu- quite a bit of a- anti-war literature. I had read, for example, the Red Badge of Courage, and I didn't know what to make of it. And actually, Cynthia says she doesn't exactly know what to make of it. Uh, It's sort of an anti-war book, but not. Many people will have read that. But there's a lot of other stuff that uh, I just didn't know existed, but apparently it was it was pretty prevalent, and that, and that very much surprised me. So there's for, for those of you that are interested in uh, war literature and anti-war literature, there's a lot of uh, new material here, um, things that, you know, you think you know the canon of X, of Whitman, let's say, but actually you only know a little part of it. And there's these sort of Cynthia ferrets out these parts that, you know, d- don't tend to either fit the stereotype of the individual or are a little bit out of character or not canonized for whatever reason. Um, uh, and so, but they are still part of the, uh, um, they are still part of the uh, collected works of that person. And, and so we should congratulate her for bringing those parts forward and uh, proving me incorrect. I, I have to say that in, th- in that case, it, uh, Cynthia's contribution is hardly unique as I'm incorrect a lot. So, uh, but it's always nice to be corrected. So Cynthia, why don't you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thank you for that very nice introduction. So I was born and raised in New York City and then went on to college. And at college, I became interested in American studies. And I really like the intersection which American studies authors of literature and history. And I'd say almost all of my work since college has focused on that intersection. Uh, While at college, I was at Yale. I also earned my master's in American studies. And then I went on to Harvard where I earned a PhD in what they call the history of American civilization, but mm-hmm. which is essentially also American studies. They, they have a different name for everything at Harvard. Yes. I don't know if you yes. noticed that. I taught there for a while. I was like, a different name for everything. Right, and it, of course, assumes that there's uh, American means United States, and civilization <laughs> means we're civilized. And so I used to think that was a pretty uh, you know, problematic title for this program, but that's what they called it. And, of course, I didn't do history. I did a lot of literature. So, Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, then, was is that the origins of this book? Isn't that, that PhD program? Yes. So I 
Yes, but maybe even going back further while mm-hmm. I was getting my master's at Yale, which I got as an undergraduate, I wrote my um, master's essay on a woman named Jeanette Rankin, who mm-hmm. was the uh, first woman elected to Congress um, from Montana, and she voted against World War I. And I was really oh, yes. I, yeah, this is a very f- interesting story. Mm-hmm. It was fascinating, and yeah. I was particularly interested in looking at how the media covered her entrance into Congress and her vote against World War One, and the ways that it was portrayed as a womanly act, a weak act. Uh-huh. And, uh, for example, I remember from that, Fiorella LaGuardia, who went on to um, become uh, important in New York politics, but that point was a congressman from New York and um, hadn't had an airport named after him yet, was asked <laughs> years later. Yeah, so the big question was whether or not she had cried as she cast her vote. And all the newspapers had her weeping and being sort of womanly and frail and uh, unable to vote for war. And the quote from Fiorella LaGuardia, which stays with me these many years later, is he said, I don't recall, I wasn't able to see through the tears of my own eyes. Yeah, right. Wow. So um, I'd say that my interest in pacifism and anti-war literature and anti-war history um, can probably be dated to that period uh, when I was still an undergraduate, and then I arrived at Harvard and realized I was very much interested in the literary side of things, mm-hmm. and so I, I continued in that vein. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I taught when I, I was going to say at, at, the, at the aforementioned university, I taught in a program called History and Literature. Yes, as did I. Yes. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, you were a tutor in history. I was a tutor in history and literature. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, an interesting program. So then, let's talk about the um, the book itself, and I want to begin with this notion that. I had this misperception that somehow anti-war literature blossomed during, as a response to and during World War uh, One. I think many people who listen to this uh, podcast will have read Paul Fussell's great book, uh, The Great War and Modern Memory, um, and he's one of my favorite authors. That's actually not my favorite book by him. Um, he wrote a book called Class, just to shout that book out. But this is a, a, one of the canonical texts in uh, the history of American letters, and I think many people got the impression that this was the moment of creation for American anti-war literature from that book. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but um, could you talk a little bit about that myth and what you found? Sure. So I should say that when I set out to write this book, I had the grandiose notion that I was going to write about all of American war literature <laughs> from the very beginning to the present. And I stuck with that plan for about a year or two um, and read a lot of works from the 17th century, Quaker anti-war writings, right up to the present. At that point, there was no Iraq or Afghanistan war, which tells you how long ago this was. Um, and so uh, I definitely read Paul Fussell's book and many others about war in America, in England, abroad, and how it would be written about. Um, and uh, it became clear to me that this notion that American war literature, anti-war literature began after World War I wasn't really accurate, and that perhaps it was more accurate for England, and um, the sales book um, is largely focusing yeah. upon England and sort of the loss of innocence there. But I, it became clear to me that at least in the American case, it was an inaccurate representation of what was going on, and it also became clear to me that if I was going to write this comprehensive book about all of American war literature, I was going to never graduate from my doctoral program. <laughs> yeah. That. So it seemed that there was a role that I could serve there, and um, originally I was focusing on the Civil War through World War One, and then for this book I narrowed it still further and looked at the Civil War through the eve of World War One. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I did find was that American war literature is different than British war literature, different than French war literature, and the other literatures with which American readers tend to be familiar. Um, and that although a lot of sort of our most famous works meant to war literature come after World War One, and obviously student studies to Creed Sassoon and Wilfred Owen mm-hmm. and other writers. Um, that there is this tradition of American anti-war literature which really needed to be examined and needed to be brought to light and sort of need to be teased out of um, letters and diaries and other documents with which Americans are less familiar. And this is because in the period before World War I, particularly during the Civil War years, it wasn't really acceptable to question the morality of war, to question the righteousness of war, to point to the brutality of war, to point to the mechanization of war and how that was impacting an individual's ability to act heroically on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. So 
Uh, I went back. I looked at letters. I looked at drafts of poems. I looked at diaries. I also looked at public works, um, things which have been published during the 1860s and later, and tried to tease out the uh, early American protest to world, uh, to the Civil War. And of course, as I indicated before, there are uh, earlier instances of anti-war writing. The Quakers are the first in the 17th century. They are writing against war. They're a pacifist sect. So it's not that there was no anti-war writing before the Civil War, but what I became convinced of is that with the Civil War, we saw the first um, sort of more full-throated, if you will, if it can be full-throated, mm-hmm. yet still very cautious, protest against war, and that that protest grew steadily throughout the late 19th century, and that, in fact, on the eve of World War I, uh, American pacifism had reached its peak, at least to that point, that mm-hmm. American pacifism actually was very, very popular on the eve of World War One, and peace societies abounded and very prominent politicians, everyone, including Harvard's uh, retired uh, president, were members of peace societies. So I was interested in looking at that maybe 50-year span, a little bit more than 50 years, from 1861 to 1914, to see how pacifism and anti-war writing and the questioning of war had come from being very unacceptable to being accepted and sort of stylish and trendy, right mm-hmm. on the eve of World War I. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. So you begin the book uh, very interestingly with um, a discussion of three depictions of the Battle of Chickamauga. Can you talk a little bit about those? Sure. So I thought this is a really helpful way maybe to lead readers of the book into the discussion. The three depictions of Chickamauga that I look at, um, one is an unpublished diary, written by a man who had a grocery store in civilian life and uh, was participating in the war but wasn't a career writer uh, and would return to his grocery store after the war and his work would never be published, uh, although he did donate it to his local library, I think, about 50 years after the battle. So that was the first work I looked at, uh, or I I address in in my book. And um, this man, Sandstock from Illinois, writes about the war very candidly. He is very factual. It's a diary format, and he records what happens on the first and second days of battle. And he records sentences such as, Ezrick Selleck was killed in line of battle. He was shot in the face, the ball coming out the back of his neck. And to me, this is really interesting because it's sort of uninflected. It's a factual statement. He's not talking about the morality of this. He's not romanticizing it, nor is he specifically dwelling upon the graphicness of it. It's just a statement. But it does also point out that, obviously, uh, the combatants and probably civilians of the Civil War era were aware of the brutality of war. And the next work that I look at uh, addressing that particular battle, the Battle of Chickamauga, which was fought uh, in September of 1863, so a little more than halfway through the Civil War, about two years and five months into the war. The second work I look at is a poem written by a woman named Molly Moore. And Molly Moore was a teenager when she wrote this poem, although a lot of historians have actually um, been confused about exactly how young she was. If you look at the record, there's some debating which sort of, you can either conclude she was quite a young teenager or an older teenager. I think she was an older teenager. But her work, her poem is very romantic It reflects the literary norms of her day, Uh, and she writes of the Battle of Chickamauga in a way which leads the reader to perceive it as being very orderly, uh, very heroic. It has none of the um, confusion. When when, uh, the diarist wrote about the battle, he talks about it being smoky. He talks, uh, for example, he says, we passed the field hospital. The woods were on fire. The smoke from the fire of battle was so dense we could not see 20 paces ahead, so we came near marching into a rebel battery. When she depicts the same morning, she talks about it in very glorious, romantic, heroic, uh, in a very in that sort of a vein. And she writes, Morn dawned upon the field, the bugle's blast wound out its shrilly summons, and the word leaped down the lines, and fiery hearts beat fast. Two gallant armies bared the murderous sword, and fearless breasted battles, and fearless breasted battles, bitter waves, and eager thousands sought their nameless graves by the river of death. 
So I looked at her poem as representative of a whole genre of romantic poetry that was written during the Civil War and which was phenomenally popular during the Civil War. And as an aside here, I should say that to understand Civil War literature, you have to understand the vital role it played during its own era, in an era when there was no C-SPAN, when there was no Internet, when there was no Twitter, when there was no television, when there was no telephone, when we didn't have nightly images of what was going on in the battlefield, poems and poems which could be written relatively quickly served this role of creating the visual imagery of the war. So the visual image that she gives forth, again, is this very sanitized version of the war. I would say it's an anachronistic version when she's talking about the murderous sword. Um, much popular poetry, the Civil War deals with sword. If swords, if you think of Julia Ward Howe's Battle Hymn of the Republic, mm-hmm. she talks about God daring his terrible swift sword. Mm-hmm. So these weren't writers who were talking about rifles or cannons or you know more modern weaponry. They're dealing with the war as if it were some sort of a chivalrous battle. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, just to recap, we have the uh, participant writing about it in his diary in this very blunt way, uninflected. We have Moore writing about it in this very romantic vein. And then 25 years later, Ambrose Bierce, um, who would get the nickname of Bitter Bierce, wrote about this uh, particular battle in a short story, which he, like Moore, titled Chickamauga. But the title is just about all their two works have in common. And Beers had been a participant in the war. He'd fought almost from beginning to end. He'd been wounded a few times. And his stories emphasize the horror of the war. They almost exaggerate or reinvent horrors of the war that didn't even exist. So Beers' story of Chickamauga, rather than focusing upon a heroic uh, soldier, and Moore's poem had focused upon a particular Texan soldier who died in battle but died a glorious death, and his comrades gather around him and give him a burial and, and sing his praises. Instead of that, Bierce's uh, story focuses upon a young boy. Uh, I think he's about six years old, and he's mute, and he's deaf, and he lives alone with his mother uh, in Georgia and goes out to play one day by himself and is actually playing at war but falls asleep and wakes up to a scene which he can't really comprehend. And what the reader understands quickly is that the battle has been fought while he's asleep and all around him are the men who have survived the battle but who are dying around him and who are mauled and who are horrors to look at. But the boy doesn't really understand this and he thinks it's some sort of a game. And he sees these men who are going by upon their hands and knees by the dozens and by the hundreds and he thinks of it as a merry spectacle. And he tries to climb on the back of one of these horribly injured men. Um, and the man is described by Beers as having a mangled face. From the upper teeth to the throat was a great red gap fringed with hanging shreds of flesh and splinters of bone. And the soldier fiercely flings the little boy to the ground. So the horror in the story mounts. We see the men drowning in the river, uh, the river which war had uh, referred to as the River of Death. Well, here it's literally a river of death. These men mm-hmm. can't get across the river. They're so injured. And the boy returns to the site of his home, but he doesn't recognize it. He just sees a place which is ablaze, and he doesn't understand what's going on. And he circles uh, the place where his house had been, again, still not quite comprehending what had gone on. And eventually he finds his mother. But when he finds her, she, like the man who's back, he had tried to uh, mount, is hideously disfigured. Her forehead has been torn away by a shell, and her brain protrudes from the jagged hole, and it's described by Beers as a frothy mass of gray crowned with clusters of crimson bubbles. Mm -hmm. And the boy sees this, and the story ends with him shrieking some horribly inarticulate primal call of pain. So that's what I was interested in. How did we get from Moore's romantic depiction of Chickamauga to this much more graphic, much more disturbing uh, portrayal, which Beers gives us uh, the two ends of the extreme, and then looking at the actual participant's version of it and you know what he knew and what he uh, recorded in his diary. Mm-hmm. So it's a long answer to your question. Yeah, no, it's an excellent answer. I want to I want to go right to, to the. Uh, the question at hand, then, uh, usually I don't do this, but it's such a nice um, description of the uh, attempt 
the, of the of the of the of the thing you're trying to explain these two poles what does explain that i mean i'm familiar with both of these uh the, the romantic version uh and i'm also familiar with this uh much more um, i don't know what word to use here i want to say realistic but it's a uh, not exactly realistic. It's certainly negative, uh, and it and it, uh, it depicts battle in a, in a very um, in a very critical way. How do we get there? What explains so, that? Sure. So I think that time is one of the major um, explanations. Um, obviously, we could look to the individuals themselves. We could say, "Oh, Texas female teenager, male war veteran." So I think you know the individuals are different who are writing these pieces. But I think the major answer is time, that when Molly Moore was writing roughly, you know, probably within weeks, if not days, after uh, the battle itself, so writing in 1862 or 1863, the norm was to depict war as uplifting, uh, or at least depict it, depict it in an uplifting way, to depict it as being morally right, um, to sentimentalize it, to sanitize it, to, as I noted, to even an- make it anachronistic by entering, uh, introducing details which didn't even have much relevance to the Civil War, to idealize it. Uh, this was how the Civil War was depayed, uh, displayed and de- depicted in hundreds, if not thousands, and definitely probably thousands of poems written during the Civil War years. Whether you are a northerner who believed that the South was treasonous, or whether you believe you are a southerner like Molly Moore who believed that the North was um, tyrannous, um, that there's a tyranny, there was a common understanding that war would be depicted in a way which comforted mothers and sweethearts and daughters and sisters and men too and gave them the security of knowing that the sacrifices they were making and that their loved ones were making was worthwhile. So again, during the Civil War years itself, it was very uncommon, particularly in print, uh, to have a literary work which questioned this fundamental understanding of the war, which questioned the way that the war was being fought which questioned the aims of the war, which questioned the brutality of the war. Things of that sort just didn't appear in print. And that's what I do in later chapters is try and show where they appear, if not in print, at least where they appear in uh, works of the same era. But after the war receded into memory and uh, the 1870s had passed and the 1880s came, it became more accessible to write works which were questioning the morality of the war, which were depicting it in new ways, which were pointing towards the modernization of warfare and the mechanization of warfare. So Ambrose Bierce both reflected this trend, but also was one of the major um, writers of that era who was doing this. Uh, In other of Bierce's works, he writes about um, soldiers and officers who commit morally questionable acts in the framework of war. So, for example, obviously in peacetime it would be unacceptable for a soldier to shoot his father or shoot his wife or shoot his children. But in various of his stories, he portrays all those things happening. He'll show an officer who uh, sees a man across the way uh, from, you know, some, I'm not explaining this clearly, but, but he'll talk about individuals, um, families which are split along loyalty. So one son will be the Union and the father will be in the Confederacy or the same thing for a husband and his wife. And the uh, individual, the protagonist of each story, will inevitably take aim at his family member and kill them. Mm -hmm. So in one of these stories, a man orders the artillery fire on the house where he knows his wife and his children are, and later in the story we see them dead. So Bierce is really pointing towards the moral or the immoral acts which are done during war. And again, by the late 19th century, this had become acceptable. Bierce became a, you know, a popular writer. His stories were praised. People liked the realism, the psychological realism of his stories. So realism was coming into play at the same time that anti-war literature was becoming acceptable. The broader literary shift from a romantic taste to a realistic, uh, people's uh, people lighting realistic authors like Mark Twain, like Howells, uh, other writers of the era. This, so the two shifts were were simultaneous, and I think were helping to feed upon each other. Mm-hmm. I, I guess one thing I would like to know is: um, is, is there some 
How, how do we account for this? I guess, how do we account for this shift, though? What, why does it, in the, in the, in the 1870s and 1880s, why does it all, all of a sudden become uh, permissible to write about war in a realistic fashion, um, whereas before it just hadn't been? Why, why do people accept this, and why do people want to do it? It's a brilliant question. Um, certainly right after the war and through the 1870s, there's a lull in Civil War writing. Uh, critics have theorized that it's just too raw, it's too recent, no one wants to read about the Civil War. So there's sort of this silence that uh, continues for a while. And then uh, by the 1880s, I think it's Century Magazine begins to run a series about the Civil War, um, which is largely written by officers and generals, again, putting forth a very heroic version of the war. But one of the writers for that is Mark Twain, who writes a private mm-hmm. history of a campaign that failed. So there are some writers who are also writing it in a different vein. Why it becomes acceptable to question the war, um, again, it's a brilliant question. I think people, maybe their own views on the war were changing. Uh, there was no longer the necessity to convince everybody that they're fighting a morally just war because the war had been concluded and had been concluded for a while. I think people were beginning to understand that war itself was changing in fundamental ways, that uh, with the introduction of machine guns, which came in the 1880s, um, they, Maxim in, uh, invented a machine gun that could shoot 400 bullets a minute, mm-hmm. that war no longer matched people's idealized notion of it. Uh, and so I think people were not as susceptible to the romantic works about the war. Um, there were new works being written, which sort of were in the Moonlight and Magnolia vein, sort of romanticizing the South, uh, romances in which the Southern Belle ends up on the arm of the, of the Yankee village officer. So it's not that all of literature shifted to being realistic or to being anti-war or to being more graphically... Uh, more graphic depictions mm-hmm. of war, but I think that there's this welcoming of a new way of looking at war. And as you noted when we started your conversation, uh, the Red Badge of Courage sort of marks the high point of that. Crane gives a much, much more graphic depiction of war, of the fear that men felt in war, of the horrors of war, than any popular writer you know, had done to that day and been as popular. Mm-hmm. His work was a sensation when it was published in the mid-1890s. Right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, tellingly, it was written by somebody who wasn't alive during the Civil War. Right. Yeah, I mean that, that, that's fascinating. Uh, I, I didn't. I just. I mean, I had read the Red Badge of Courage when I was in high school, and I, I did. I just didn't realize that Crane had not seen battle himself. That's a pretty remarkable thing. But let's begin talking about some authors that our audience will certainly know, and um, you you deal with a bunch of them. Well, some they know, and some they they will not know. Let's let's start with um, uh, uh, Melville, uh, and he writes a little bit about the Civil War. Can you say a few words about that? Sure. So. One of the things which I try to highlight in my book were that, or is that there are a number of very, very famous writers, people we think of as icons of American literature, Herman Melville, Walt Whitman, Mark Twain, Nathaniel Hawthorne, being maybe the four most famous, who we can see questioning the morality of the war uh, during the war years or after the war years. And I think that this is important because it points to the fact that, that anti-war literature is part of our heritage. It's not something, again, which crops up simply after World War I, but that if these men define what it means to be an American writer or what it means to be American, then we need to broaden the understanding to encompass their questioning of the morality of war. And that is something that Herman Melville had been doing even long before the Civil War. Um, in fact, Herman Melville's strongest anti-war writings are written before the Civil War, mm-hmm. um, maybe in reaction to the uh, Mexican-American War. He wrote a number of works before the Civil War. In fact, his, in, in America, he was famous not for Moby Dick, which was somewhat panned in his own day, but for a series of adventure novels that he wrote, uh, Taiti and Omu, which were published in the 1840s about his own adventures abroad. Mm-hmm. And so in these works and various scenes of them, he imagines war and comes down quite strongly against it. He talks of war as being barbaric, as being uncivilized. He mocks the notion uh, of there being um, a battlefield of glory. Um, in one of this uh, passage in Marty, one of these books, which was published in 1849, in the late 80s, 1840s, not the early 1840s, he writes, uh, "'Tis glory that calls to each hero that falls, hack away, merry men, hack away. Mm. And that is a direct 
attack upon the romantic notion of war, which came to Americans via Sir Walter Scott, that war was chivalrous, that um, the battlefield is a place of glory. So Melville registered his disgust with war um, unmistakably in these early wars, in these early works, um, in Taipei and in Omu and in a work uh, named Marty. He talks about these wars in, unfla- in unflattering terms. And perhaps he does this the most in White Jacket. And White Jacket is a work uh, published in 1850, which Melville set on a warship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it can be read, uh, scholars argue, as a full-length attack on war. And um, perhaps in one of his stronger statements in this book, he writes, There is little or no skill in bravery about it. Two parties armed with lead and old iron envelop themselves in a cloud of smoke and pitch their lead and old iron about in all directions. Mm -hmm. If you happen to be in the way, you are hit, possibly killed. If not, you escape. So it's a very, obviously, unglamorous version Mm -hmm. of war. Uh, You know, (laughs) none of the language which readers of the era would have expected in a description of war as being glorious and being about heroism and being about sacrifice and being about risk-taking. And that's how Melville wrote about war before the advent of the Civil War. Uh, And in his, I'd say, his strongest passage in White Jacket, he wrote, But as the whole matter of war is a thing that smites common sense and Christianity in the face, so everything connected with it is utterly foolish, unchristian, barbarous, brutal, and the savoring of the Fiji Islands, cannibalism, saltpeter, and the devil. So, again, it's hard to imagine uh, a clearer condemnation of war than someone saying that everything associated with war uh, reeks of, uh, of, of the devil. Um, but that's what he wrote. And then when he was confronted with the Civil War, I think Melville really had a problem. He believed that war was wrong, that it was immoral, that it was barbaric, that it, again, was associated with, with the devil. But he also was uh, a supporter of the Union. Mm-hmm. And he saw the war as a conflict between right and wrong. And he repeatedly capitalized those words, right and wrong, in his poetry. So what we see for Melville, and what I argue we see for the other authors I mentioned, Hawthorne and um, Whitman among them, is a conflict of convictions. And that phrase actually is the title of one of Melville's poems, that he had this conflict of convictions. He was convinced that war is wrong, but he also was convinced that the Union was right. And so this is what really interested me in his works and in the works of other authors is how they reconciled that, how these authors, these anti-war authors, or who I call anti-war writers, were um, questioning either in their public or private works the fundamental morality of war um, and that they shared a common impulse to rewrite and redefine war, that they Mm -hmm. weren't willing to use the romantic vocabulary, the sentimental vocabulary, the sanitized vocabulary of other authors of their day. Mm-hmm. and that they are challenging the conventional understanding of war as morally righteous. Um, and instead, we're looking at it as being inherently immoral and horrible and then thinking about how could that be justified or how could that be reconciled with their support for the Union. Mm-hmm. And I think we can trace that through Melville's poems. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about Whitman? Does he fall into the same category? He served after fashion and um, has... Yes. So um, Whitman... Um, well, Melville hadn't participated in the Civil War. Mm-hmm. He was too old. He had various injuries. He wasn't in fantastic health. And he spent much of the war in Arrowhead, his house up in the Berkshires. Uh, Whitman, by contrast, started out the war in New York City, in Brooklyn, and he wrote some early poems supporting the war, uh, Beat Beat Drums, a poem which maybe many of your listeners are familiar with. And meanwhile, his brother went off to fight in the war. And then in late 1862, at the Battle of Fredericksburg, word arrived that his brother had been injured. Um, But again, reflecting the lack of great news access, which I alluded to before, it wasn't very clear how his brother had been injured. So Whitman went off as the emissary for his family. He rushed down to Fredericksburg. And after some searching, he found his brother. And fortunately, his brother wasn't particularly badly wounded. He'd had a wound, I think, in his cheek. But he was on the mend, and it was clear he was going to be okay. But what Whitman saw when he arrived at Fredericksburg horrified him. 
one of the first sights he saw was a tree outside an improvised field hospital, and at the base of the tree was a stock of amputated limbs, mm -hmm. arms and legs and feet, which had been cut off from the men who were receiving treatment in the field hospital. And Whitman was appalled. Uh, Whitman, you know, who was uh, uh, believed in democracy, believed in the American spirit, had coaxed everyone to go and fight in this war, had written and beat, beat drums, um, sought for no expostulation, mind not the timid, mind not the weeper of the prayer, which he'd urged everyone to go, everyone to leave behind their fields, leave behind their wives, go and support this great democratic cause. He really had paused, and he was horrified by what he saw in Fredericksburg, and if we look in his diary of the period, we can see that. Um, there's a poem that he wrote in his diary, which he titled the, A Battle. And it's written in, hand, in his handwriting um, in four pages of his diary. And in this poem, in his first draft of this poem, he talks about the scenes at the batteries uh, and what, he, what he's imagining what the battlefield looked like. And uh, at one point he writes, Oh, the hideous damned hell of war. Were the preachers preaching of hell? Oh, there is no hell more damned than this hell of war. So we think of the phrase war as hell as, as emanating or beginning with uh, General Sherman. Mm -hmm. But we see here that Whitman was saying it first, but he was saying it privately. He was saying it in his diary. And in his diary, he also described the dead. He wrote of them, the positions of the dead, some with arms raised, poised in the air, some lying curled on the ground, the dead in every position. Some of the dead, how soon they turn black in the face and swollen. So he was recording in his diary this very graphic, this very disturbing, this very unsettling version of the Civil War, and he was questioning the morality of the war. He was saying this damned hell of war, this hideous damned hell of war, but that was not the version which he would ultimately uh, pass along to the public, at least mm -hmm. in his poetry. If we trace that very same poem, A Battle, to the version which appeared in his drum taps collection, his collection of Civil War poetry, it becomes sanitized. He takes out the dead curled on the ground. He takes out the dead black in the face. And he re-envisions the poem as a recollection, something that a veteran will remember years later while lying beneath his wife safe in bed. So he transfers it. He domesticates it quite literally. Uh, to after the war years to a domestic scene, something which the soldier, the veteran, will remember at night when he wakes with his babe in the next room and his wife by his side. But that wasn't uh, representative of the real horror that Whitman felt when he saw what was at Fredericksburg, when he saw the amputated limbs, when he saw the field hospitals, when he saw what war had wrecked. And uh, again, I think we see Melville, uh, Whitman here with accomplished convictions quite similar to Melville's, trying to reconcile his notions of democracy, of the wonderful exhibition of democracy, which he believed the Civil War was, with also the destruction that it was. And from that point forward, Whitman went to Washington. He accompanied a load of injured soldiers on train load who were being transferred to Washington, and he remained in Washington for most of the rest of the war, uh, except for a period when he went back to New York to recuperate, and was a volunteer nurse, uh, wound dresser is what he called himself, to the soldiers in Washington. It wasn't an official capacity. He wasn't truly a nurse on staff anywhere, but he saw it as his role to give comfort to the men, both northern and southern, who were injured or sick and dying quite often. Mm -hmm and to comfort them with a personal touch. And again, many of these boys were teenagers, far from home, far from friends, so he filled that void. He was their friend. He was the man who would sit by their side at night as they were delirious and write letters home for them or bring them treats. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this, this is not a Whitman that I knew very much about, to be honest with you. I, yeah. Right, and I think we don't see it, even if we're familiar with his drum tap poems, which I read in college, we don't know what was in his diary, yeah. and I think we need to see that he was self-editing, that he wasn't mm -hmm. sharing freely his thoughts, and that in his diary and later in his published uh, prose, uh, which appeared in Specimen Days, he writes about the war as a butcher's house, uh -huh. uh, and that imagery of butchering is one which recurs in much anti-war writing and certainly becomes very popular in the 20th century. You know, we can think of a work like Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
five, I think, or you know, the the true peak of, of that image. But a lot of the imagery, a lot of the strategies, a lot of the moral debates which occur in twentieth century literature from World War One going forward, we can trace to the literature of the Civil War era. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Tell us about John William DeForest. I had not heard of John William DeForest at all. Sure. So he's a writer who is not as well known, um, but probably wrote the single work, the single novel of the Civil War that, if, if anyone is going to look for the great anti-war uh, work of the Civil War, it's uh, this work. It's called Miss Ravenel's Conversion. What is it from... Oof, now I'm going to not get the whole long title of it right. Let me look and see if I can find it. Um, but he was a, a man from Connecticut. He also wasn't in great health, but he volunteered uh, for the war and um, was commissioned as captain of a, the 12th Connecticut Volunteers. So he was an officer in the war. He saw war at first hand, and what he wrote about both within that novel and his letters home and within articles for Harper's New Monthly Magazine and The Galaxy um, was very different, again, from the typical romantic war prose and war poetry of his day. Uh, And the book I found the title is Miss Ravenel's Conversion from Secession to Loyalty, and it was published in 1867 and, not surprisingly, panned. Um, It wasn't actually (laughs) until uh, the 20th century um, and I think it was the eve of World War II that this book finally got some recognition and was hailed as being quite an interesting book. And it's, it's a sort of strange mishmash of a book. At once it's very romantic, and on the other hand, it's very realistic. And some of the things which 19th century writer, author, sorry, readers didn't like were things like there's an adulterous affair in it. So that made it unpalatable to be serialized in a family magazine. Um, so not everything about it that was objectionable was even objectionable with regard to war, some of it was just objectionable for being objectionable in its day. Um, but what John William DeForest did was write about war with a humor, with a graphicness, which was really uh, unique, or was unique in his day. Um, so, for example, when he was taking part in the siege outside Port Hudson, Louisiana, which he later described as 40 days and nights in the wilderness of death, he... Um, would recall call how boring it was. And he described this as follows, that some men were participating in sharpshooting and other men were playing cards. Mm-hmm. And he commented, I could never bring myself to what seemed like taking human life in pure gaiety, and I had not as yet learned to play euchre. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm saying that card game right, euchre. Um, but, so he wrote about the war sort of an irony with a dark bitter humor, again, which was atypical for his day, but which 20th century readers of uh, Kurt Vonnegut's work, of Joseph Heller's Catch-22, of Tim O'Brien's work, of any of the most popular 20th century uh, anti-war works would recognize. Uh, He wrote about topics which were absolutely uh, forbidden to write about his day. He wrote to his wife about how the officers and the soldiers were routinely getting drunk and this was during an era when temperance was a huge movement, when um, uh, swearing and drinking were considered huge vices. He wrote about them. He wrote about, for one article for a magazine, about blisters on men's feet mm-hmm. and how men had to march maybe 24 miles in a single day. And he talked about this as heroism, the heroism of marching when the men were in such pain that they just wanted to desert on the spot and how they had to be forced to march. I think the title of the piece might have been Forced Marches. So again, this was not in keeping with the standard literary norms of his era, which depicted men as eagerly marching into fray and never actually focused upon the miles and miles and miles they had to march on blistered feet with poor rations, exhausted um, and ready to desert. So he pushed boundaries in ways which are very interesting, both in his published works and, again, in his private work. Um, But he would admit later that even he had not dared to tell the whole truth about war um, and that he had been fearful of writing more of the truth about war for fears, you know, that he would be called a coward or that he would have been uh, rebuked or or, uh, been slandered in his own day. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of self-censorship that went on, even among the people who were writing literally about these things. Right, and actually in the earlier versions of my work, that was something which sort of the 
common theme which I saw for these early writers was self-censorship, the way that Melville, when he writes about the draft riots in New York, says, I do not dare to tell, uh, I can't miss the paraphrase, but yeah. the horrible atrocities which I saw, and which, you know, DeForest says, I did not dare to tell all the truth about the horrors of war, mm-hmm. and which Whitman is clearly self-censoring. And we can see again and again these authors self-censoring their works. So it seems to me that they're either self-censoring maybe because they're Whitman and they want to inspire American readers and want to put forth this notion of democratic sacrifice uh, and don't think it's helpful to uh, remind readers of the graphicness of the war or, uh, you know, for other reasons that they are clearly not sharing with readers the full range of their thoughts on war, the full range of their thoughts on the immorality of war. (laughs) Yeah, one thing that I was reminded of as I read this uh, was that this trope survives, that this is too horrible to tell, not among writers about war in the later 20th century, but among veterans. Uh, I know that my uncle who fought in Vietnam would come back and say, yeah, I don't really want to talk about what happened over there. It's too horrible to say. Yes, there's definitely that, that each generation of veterans feels that only a fellow veteran could understand what they've been through and a reluctance to share it. Uh, and we see that in Hemingway. Again, we see that in Tim O'Brien's stories. Both of them, both of them wrote stories about veterans who are alienated in yeah. their own communities when they come home, mm-hmm. um, and who end up as suicides or un- yeah. other uh, ill-adjusted individuals because there's no way to tell this horrible knowledge. Mm-hmm. There's no way to share it. There's no way that even if they tried to share it, that the sweetheart who's been it back home in, in Iowa or wherever it is she's mm-hmm. been will comprehend the horrors mm-hmm. of France. Will hun- comprehend the of Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. I, I just find it interesting and paradoxical that these uh, O'Brien's a good example of someone who do, does write stories about veterans a lot, uh, and also writes about the war. In his stories about the war itself, they are very graphic. Uh, but then when he comes to write about, and this is true to my own experience, um, when he comes to, to write about uh, people who have been in combat, and so they come home, they, they uniformly say, and this is true in Hemingway too. There's a famous Hemingway story about this. Uh, they, they can't talk about it. Yeah, I just the, the survival of the trope in I guess what you might call it, um, sort of oral testimony that, that is, that is, it has now been purged from literature. People speak very, or write very realistically about war, but still the telling of it is still kind of forbidden. Right. So I think that that's what I'm trying to point to is that someone like John uh, William DeForest during the Civil War was pushing that as far yeah. as anyone in his day was pushing it. And in his, uh, in his prose and in that uh, Mr. Avenel's conversion, he even depicted some really quite awful field hostile scenes of amputations of people in tremendous agony of people dying. And he would almost lace it with sort of a, a, a mock romanticism. So you'd have a beautiful boy with curls in his hair out for his first day, you know, in the trenches or something, and then suddenly smack in his head would be a bullet. Mm-hmm. So it was almost like he was taking the romantic view of war and showing how inaccurate it was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and again, to bring us full circle, echoing what we saw in the diary entry from Chickamauga, where there is that sort of just factual statement, you know, Ezra Selenik in our, in our unit took a bullet to the head. Mm-hmm. But in romantic literature, you don't ever see took a bullet to the head. Mm-hmm. Um, so for DeForest to do that it is to anticipate these 20th century writers who would deal with war in a much more graphic and a much more ironic and a much more black-humored way. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So he's introducing that literary vein, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a good hundred years before uh, World War II, when I'm yeah. off on my math, but at least before Vietnam, yeah. the, the, the popular literature of Vietnam. Yeah. Killed in action doesn't really begin to tell the story of what happened. <laughs> right. Yeah. And the, the, the trope for the Civil War is always, you know, took a bullet to the breast. That's yeah. how all the men right. die. And yeah. of course, it's not how all the men died. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. So let's move on a little bit chronologically uh, to the moment at which this sort of expression becomes uh, acceptable. And, and you, you write about a few people that we know. Uh, one of them is Twain and Hawthorne and uh, and Stephen Crane. Um, it's sort of fielder's choice. Which would you like to talk about first? <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a good choice. I think I'll go with Twain. Okay, Twain for yeah, sure. Save your yeah. All right, go ahead. <laughs> um, so Mark Twain, uh, I love the piece that he wrote, A Private History of a Campaign That Failed. It's one that he wrote for that Century series, uh, and it was published in 1885, and it's a wonderful, wonderful piece. So Twain 
And this, I think many people don't know, actually fought in the Civil War. And he fought on the Confederate side. But he wasn't part of an official force. Uh, he was fighting in the open weeks of the war, and he was part of sort of a ragtag, self-appointed group of uh, fighters who called themselves the Marion Rangers. And um, in his piece, which he wrote some 25 years later, well, less than 25 years later, he reflects upon this, and he makes it sort of a mock epic. He's totally mocking himself, totally mocking the choices which he made in fighting for the Confederacy. The piece starts out by saying he couldn't really decide at first which side to fight for. He didn't know whether to defend slavery, to be against slavery. So from the very first lines of the piece, he's calling into question the morality of the war. Right? It's, it's, he can't even decide at the beginning which side is right, uh, undermines any notion that this is a righteous war, that this is a God-blessed war. Um, but he ends up on the side of the Confederacy, and in the piece he goes on to talk about uh, how the Marion Rangers were incredibly fearful, and they fled at the first sight of any dangers. Um, he writes, every few days rumors would come that the enemy was approaching. In these cases, we always fell back on some other camp of ours. <laughs> yeah. We never stayed where we were. So it's a mock epic, but it mounts to a very, very telling scene. What happens uh, in the course of the story is that the Marion Rangers, again, are fearful. They run at any sign of danger. But one night, uh, in the dark, there's an unknown horseman who approaches them. And they can't really see this horseman. They don't really know who he is. But they take aim at him, and they shoot him. And Twain recalls that after feeling an initial surge of exhilaration, he was struck with remorse. He writes, The thought shot through me that I was a murderer, that I had killed a man, a man who had never done me any harm. Mm -hmm. That was the coldest sensation that ever went through my marrow. And I almost hear Huck Finn, but the reference to marrow makes me think of Huck Finn, but it, it, it's in the middle of this mock epic, we have this very, very telling, very, very moralistic line. To kill a man in war is murder. Mm -hmm. And he goes on to say, uh, he notes that they can never establish who this man was. The man was not in uniform and was not armed. He was a stranger in the country. That was all we ever found out about him. Thought of him got to preying upon me every night. I could not get rid of it. I could not drive it away. The taking of that unoffending light seemed such a wanton thing, and it seemed an epitome of war. That all war must be just that, the killing of strangers against whom you feel no personal animosity, strangers whom, in other circumstances, you would help if you found them in trouble and would help you if you needed it. Mm -hmm. So, again, a very, very strong indictment of war, the war, the taking of life, war as murder, uh, that this death of this innocent man can be seen as, quote, the epitome of war. And Twain then says that at that point he ran away from the war. He went to join his brother out west because war was for men and he realized he was a child. Mm -hmm. But it's very clear to any perceptive reader of the story that, in fact, he acted as the man in this scenario. Mm -hmm. That he's the one who took moral responsibility for his act and fled war before he would be engaged in any more murder, whereas it was the other men who stayed behind to fight. Mm -hmm. or the other men, you know, who were less morally responsible who stayed behind the fight. So it's a really interesting piece. And uh, from that point forward, I'd say from 1885 forward, Mark Twain wrote a number of pieces uh, against war. The most famous of these is a short story called The War Prayer, which seems to have gotten a lot of play in recent years. But he returns again and again to war to talk about the immorality of war, to talk about how men have engaged, humankind has engaged in war since the and how violent we are. And he makes one statement, which I think is really very uh, profound. In the course of one of these words, he talks about how uh, at the beginning of any war, the people start to speak up against war and how they're drowned out and how uh, the war climate is never very tolerant to anti-war protesters um, and how sort of, they risk bodily harm if they uh, persist in speaking out against war. Um, and I see that as something you know, which happens again and again uh, if we think about the Sedition Act or the Patriot Act, you know, how there's not much tolerance in America uh, at the time of most wars, during most wars, for those who are questioning the morality of the wars, mm -hmm. those who are uh, questioning uh, the methods of the war. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that, 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 the Twain story kind of reminds me of, um, you know, the, the, the role of Christianity in these things kind of waxes and wanes. This is true all over Western history because, you know, in the, in the Middle Ages and the early modern period, uh, people very fortlessly said that killing people in war was murder and that you need to get some sort of allowance from a priest or a pastor in order to do it. And then after you did it, you were required to go confess your sin because it was just murder. That's all that it was. And then somehow in the 18th and 19th century, we have this notion that it isn't murder anymore, but it creeps back occasionally. And in hearing Twain talk about that, where this one man stands for the whole thing, it's a, it's a little bit Jesus-like we have sacrificed this guy. He stands for all of our sins. I mean, this is a, it's, it's a bankrupt thing that we're doing. It doesn't have, there's no excuse for it. It is murder. Um, and I just, it's, it's very interesting how this kind of goes back and forth in that way. I was just talking to a medievalist about this and, you know, the crusaders after they got back had to be, uh, you know, they had to be cleansed of their sins because they had committed murder. Um, it's so, really interesting the way you put that. I know that war prayer, the work I taught, I spoke about, uh, I mentioned in passing, is actually set in a church. Yeah, and yeah. it's it shows a congregation eagerly sending their boys off to war, and a stranger comes in and condemns them, and basically says, "Oh, so you're going off to kill other people's children." Oh, so you're going and rephrases all of their idealistic phrases. You know, we will triumph. We are fighting for victory, right. and and brings it down to this much more graphic level of you're going to kill other mother's sons. Right. This is what you're celebrating. So it's interesting that he positions that within a church, yeah, it is. bringing into question the role of Christianity yeah. in, in uh, allowing. Yeah, because the, I mean, the, you know, this is the kind of f- fundamental moment in Christianity. We, we, whoever we is, we kill somebody who's innocent. And, and the whole thing starts there. We kill an innocent person. And how are we going to deal with that? And, you know, again, C. Twain sort of have that person stand for the whole thing is, a, is very interesting to me because, in a sense, that's what Christianity has done. It, it makes all, the entire human condition, it, it takes one episode, kill an innocent person, and it all starts from there. And, and uh, it just, it's kind of an interesting parallel to me. Why don't we talk a little bit about um, – about, before we're done, I want to talk about uh, Stephen Crane because, again, a lot of people will have read that story. And I thought what you had to say about it was, uh, was very perceptive. So if you could speak a few words about him, that would be great. Sure. So um, Stephen Crane, born six years after the Civil War, writes The Red Badge of Courage, which becomes a huge sensation when it's published in the 1890s. It's huge in America, it's huge in England, it's huge everywhere. Um, But it's an interesting work because it depicts, uh, first of all, it depicts the war as very mechanized. Um, The protagonist describes the, uh, the opposing Confederate soldiers. He says, they must be machines of steel. And he talks about the army as a mighty blue machine, Mm. Um, and later on he talks about methodical idiots, machine-like fools. So first of all, we see Crane registering the modernization and mechanization of war in a way which his predecessors had not. It's almost as if the soldiers are fighter era workmen in a foundry or or factory workers working, hammering out steel. Um, and so I think that that's interesting that he describes the battle as the whirring and thumping of gigantic machinery. The war has become a vast machine, and that's a theme which I trace through a lot of late 19th century war literature and early 20th century war literature is this new sensitivity uh, to the ways in which war is changing, the way in which it's becoming larger, the way in which people are becoming dependent or having the notion that it's the weaponry and the scientific ingenuity which will win future wars rather than the manpower, rather than heroism. So I think that that definitely registers in um, Crane's work, but I think that's also probably not what you're asking me to reflect upon. Um, So Crane talks about one uh, soldier, this Henry Fleming, who goes off to war and what he finds at war. And I think uh, when people do read the work as anti-war work, they do so because Henry Fleming is disillusioned by war. It doesn't match what he's read about in his books. It doesn't match his predetermined notions of war. Um, instead, he sees horrors. He sees at one point a face uh, hidden in sort of a cathedral-like space created by trees, and it's a decomposing soldier, and there's a bug treadling along its lower lip. And so mm-hmm. he gives us some quite graphic depictions of war, which are, in a way, echoing those of um, uh, DeForest and earlier writers, and he tells of the protagonist's own fears and horrors and cowardice within the context of war. Even if he eventually overcomes his fears and cowardice and horror, um, we are seeing the emotional reality of war in a way which we haven't seen it 
or we didn't see it in the 1860s, but somewhat akin to how Ambrose Bierce was writing about it, that we have the realistic, the emotional realism of the war, the psychological realism of the war. And I think that that is what appealed to late 19th century readers. And apparently in its day, all sorts of veterans responded and said, oh, yes, I remember that, that Crane fellow. I fought, you know, beside him at Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. So definitely for the <laughs> veterans themselves, they recognized this mm-hmm. as war. For the first time, they recognized the war that they had fought on the written page, and that was really new. It hadn't been on the written page before. It had been, you know, this romanticized, and the heroes breasted the battle's wave fearlessly. And they knew they hadn't been fearless, and they knew they hadn't breasted any battle's waves. They, you know, that wasn't the way that they had thought about the war. So Crotts, uh, Crane's plot, which pivots on this young soldier's transformation from idealistic civilian to a disillusioned veteran captured the American imagination about war in a way which no other work had done before. Mm-hmm. Um, he depicts war as hellish. At one point, um, Henry, the protagonist, feels like a dull animal, uh, sorry, a dull animal-like rebellion against his fellows. War in the abstract and fate. I didn't read that well, but he's, he's not feeling fond of war. He's not feeling fond of his fellow soldiers. He feels tumult of agony and despair. So, again, the sort of language to be used about war is, is innovative. It's something which reflects the time when Crane was writing. Again, it's both his contribution to innovations in war literature, and Hemingway later would say, oh, yes, you know, Crane's the one who got war right. But it's also reflecting uh, what is going on in the late 19th century as machine guns are coming into use, as Americans are seeing the implications of modernization of technology, of scientific invention, for a war. They can see it's not going to be about one man standing up and breasting battle's waves. Right. Um, you know, one sort of figure I would say is that uh, General Washington commanded 9,000 men. Well, the, the uh, generals, Union generals in the Civil War uh, commanded 100,000 men. Mm-hmm. So the individual's ability to rise from the masses, rise from the ranks, and be, you know, the pivotal player diminishes. And at the same time, the likelihood of him dying an anonymous death on, you know, on a battlefield in a unmar- in, and being left you know, in an unmarked grave uh, becomes much more likely. So I think it's the recognition of that which uh, Crane is reflecting in the late 19th century and, again, reflecting as someone who b- was born after the war, not as a veteran, um, but as someone who has sort of steeped in the war and imaginatively thought about it from the perspective of the mid-1890s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I guess one question I have for you, we're, all, we're out of time really, but I, I want to, um, do you think it's the case, that, I mean, th- this book, The Red Badge of Courage, is read in, in lots of uh, high schools, I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, thousands and thousands of them. Do you, do you think it's um, badly taught and misread? It's okay, you, no, can, you don't have to answer that if you don't want. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's a puzzling one because, you know, critics really do disagree whether it's anti-war or not anti-war, um, you know, so it's this seminal text, but we're not in agreement about how to read it. Um, it certainly appeared at a time when the war was still, you know, thought about in romantic terms. Mm-hmm. I think young boys still somehow find it romantic, and I'm sort of puzzled by that. I think the thing, maybe this is a better way that I can answer this and, and, answer, and conclude our conversation if we're there, is to say that what's innovative quickly becomes familiar. And I find this when I'm teaching students all the time is it's hard to recapture the novelty of something. So psychological realism, when we're inside a protagonist's head, well, we're still familiar with that because we've read 20th century literature. Mm -hmm. We don't recognize what a breakthrough it was in its own day. Mm -hmm. When we see a graphic picture of a dead soldier, we're used to that. We've seen it in movies. We've Mm -hmm. read it. We've read it in the news. You know, we've been so overexposed to that we can't recapture Mm -hmm. what that meant what it meant to see that, to read that, to experience that for the first time. And so I think that the way that we read The Red Badge of Courage, by definition, has to be really, really different than how it was read in the mid-1890s because we don't experience its new contributions in the way that readers in its own day did because Hemingway and everybody else has incorporated it mm-hmm. and built upon it. Mm-hmm. And that's true of uh, into our literature as a whole, is that it's sort of an accruing process. Everyone builds upon and borrows upon what became... Uh, prior to them, both in America and abroad, mm-hmm. um, so that um, themes re- are recycled and imagery is recycled and new innovations are recycled and, again, quickly become familiar. And then it's almost as if right, readers have to find a new horror, a new technique to mm-hmm. shock readers anew. Mm-hmm. 
I, I certainly, just to be autobiographical, I did not read it as an anti-war novel. I read it, <clears throat> in hindsight, as a kind of coming-of-age novel. Uh, yeah, I, it, it, there's no way I read it as an anti-war novel. I'm sure of it. Um, it's a long time ago, but I kind of remember. So, anyway. Right, and I don't think it's typically taught as such. But, again, I think to the extent that it's an anti-war book, it had that effect most strongly yeah. when it was read in its own day, mm-hmm. when readers would have said, wow, I've never seen war mm-hmm. described that way before. Wow, you're calling war hell. Yeah. Wow, you're showing us this dead man who is horrific. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. He's not neatly buried in a grave. He's lying unburied and decomposing. We don't right. want to see that. Yeah. So again, I think to catch that raw shock, one would have had to have read in eighteen, you know, eighteen ninety six. Well, thankfully, we have you to put it in the right context so we understand it. Um, Cynthia, thank you so much for being on the show today. Let me uh, conclude the interview by asking our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, uh, what are you working on now? So I have a number of projects I'm working on now, some sort of short-term projects working about Melville, working about anti-imperialism in the late 19th century, um, and on the horizon, I would love to look at the literature about our most recent wars in Iraq and Afghanistan mm-hmm. and see how they are being written about. Mm-hmm. I've done some of that, but I'd like to do more of that. And I also have a notion to maybe continue uh, the work which I started so long ago on World War One literature and mm-hmm. to sort of build upon War No More and, uh, mm-hmm. through One More War. war. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm very envious because I... I I really enjoy uh, doing research on these kinds of things. My, my own uh, work is taking me in a different direction. But like I say, I envy you, and I hope we can have you on the show when some of this comes to bookish fruition. All right? Thank you. Thank okay. you very much. Okay, Cynthia. Thanks for being on the show today. Thanks. You've been listening to an interview with Cynthia Wachtel about her new book, War No More, The Anti-War Impulse in American Literature, 1861 to 1914. I'm Marshall Poe. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. Thank you.